Well, good morning. We are continuing our study in First Thessalonians. Uh, we are uh, at a, in a new chapter, and I would say a, a bit of a transitional uh, chapter, uh, though it flows out of what we've already looked at. As you'll remember in our uh, previous sermons, Paul has recounted uh, the good report received. Good to hear from you. We were longing to hear from you, and we sent Timothy, and we get a good report um, that you're standing fast in the Lord. And yet, Paul, in chapter 3, also understands the human condition. He understands our hearts. That we are, by nature as sinners, prone to wander, as the, as the hymn writer said. And so at the end of chapter 3, he prays for the Thessalonian church. And he says, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. He prays that they might do what? That they might exhibit more love, that they might exhibit more faith. Or to put it as Paul puts it, that they might become blameless in holiness before God. And now in chapter 4, he takes the opportunity to press into what that looks like. So he takes that idea that he prayed for, that they would to stand fast and to grow in these ways, to be blameless in the holiness before God. And he presses in on this. So in verses 1 to 8, eight he hones in on purity. Particularly, he's looking at the issue of sexual purity. And maybe it's helpful that I say I'm, this is a sermon that is going to touch on sexuality just you know, at a PG, PG-13 level. We're not going to go too far, but it just be aware uh, that this is a topic that, you know, your child may have questions uh, afterwards. So uh, I, I, I say that up front, but I'm just preaching the text. This is what the Lord has for us today, and we need to go there. As a culture, um, we need to go there. As a church, we need to go there. Just putting that out first. So in verses 1 to 8, he hones in on purity, and then in verses 9 to 12, he hones in on love. So sort of two areas of what it means to be blameless in holiness. And today we're just going to be looking at verses 1 to 8, where he hones in on this purity, what it means to live holy lives and pure lives. So with that, let's go to the text. We're going to read chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. Hear God's word. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, and no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. 
Lord, we ask for your help. You have promised your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we cry out that you would change our lives and make us pure and blameless and holy before you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. How do you define yourself? How do you define yourself? What makes you, you? This is a, you know, a cultural question that you could probably come up with a cultural answer for how the world might respond to this. But I want to, I want to go back in time a little bit. Um, late 19th, early 20th century, there was a, a famous, as you probably already know, psychologist named Sig, Sigmund Freud, renowned, uh, altered the course and trajectory of the study of humanity in many, many ways. And he tried to answer this question. In his theory, he argued that we have what is called the id. There's a little bit of uh, background here. The id, this is your subconscious part of yourself that is marked by primitive urges or pleasure principle that he calls your libido, that this urge or drive in you to to take what you want, to take it. And, and, you know, we apply it to sexuality, but he applied it more broadly to anything that we desire. It's that energy, the drive, that satisfy the desires and to give us pleasure. That, that's what the id is about in its subconscious. Now, there was other aspects to the human that he noted. You know, the ultimate aim of the id is one's own pleasure. Now, if that's left unchecked, the id and the libido with it would grab anything and everything that leads to pleasure. And so there is another aspect of ourselves that he noted that was called the ego. And he said that ego was there to stepped in to, to, to keep the id and under check, if you will. Uh, it was uh, to avoid the nasty consequences of just doing whatever you want all the time. Now, there was a second or a third uh, uh, aspect of the humanity, the highest, and, and I don't know that he would say the highest, but this was sort of another controlling aspect of ourselves. He called the superego. And the superego conjectures high ideals, even morals, morals and ideals that come through culture and family and religion and tradition that helps suppress those urges. Um, But at the root of it all, Freud says, you are defined by your desires. You're defined by them. It's who you are. That's the real you. You dig deep enough, you come to that. Now, this is obviously a very rough outline of Freudian thought. But it has had a profound and, I believe, deeply destructive impact on our world. We, particularly us in the West, define ourselves not by our family, which some cultures do, not by our work, which some folks might, not fundamentally even by our standing in society, but by those most base instincts and desires. You know, there was that old adage, I, you are what you eat. I think that was like a nutritionist way of trying to get you to eat healthy. Um, but maybe a better way to put it is you are what you desire. You are what you, you feel at the most basic level. Maybe you are here this morning and this rings true. That's right. That, those basic instincts, that basic urge that I have has to be good. It gives me pleasure. It makes me feel happy when I do those things. That must be who I am at the root of myself, my identity. 
I need to be true to those feelings, true to myself, not let those constructs of family or culture or religion do away with it. And maybe that, maybe that rings true today for some of you. What we read here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 runs completely counter to this thought. In fact, Paul argues that the truest aim is not self-pleasure, not even pleasing one another, not pleasing your family. He says, your ultimate goal as a human ought to be the pleasure of God. And Maybe you sit there and you think, that doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound fun. That doesn't sound pleasurable. My goal, my aim is to please God. But Paul here, like Freud... Hear that? I don't know if that's ever been said. <laughs> he examines the most basic of desires, sexual desire, to see it as the bellwether or litmus test. Do we seek to please God? Is that our ultimate aim? Or do we seek to please ourselves? And this is what the Apostle Paul does here when he takes this one area and he says, this is the bellwether. Are you somebody who worships a false god, you're an idolater, or are you one who lives for the living God, one who pleases God? Because the bellwether is your views here when it comes to sexuality. That, that's, a, that's a heavy weight in a, in a day and age where <laughs> sexuality itself is the thing that defines you. It's a heavy weight to think about. This morning, my hope is that in the end, that we see that pleasing God will in fact find us joy and pleasure. Like that, that God's pleasure is our pleasure. As John Piper would, this is his, his, his wheelhouse. This is what he, he, he drives home, this idea that pleasing God ultimately is our greatest joy and pleasure. If, rightly understood. And I want us to look at this idea of pleasing God and finding pleasure in him in three ways this morning. First, I want us to think about finding pleasure in holiness because that seems counterintuitive to find pleasure in right living and holiness. And then secondly, I want to look at the fool's gold of self-pleasure and how it's illusory. It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't give us what we desire ultimately. And then finally, I want us to see how the Holy Spirit's pleasure is in you. That's where I want us to land. Because I think one danger we have when we come to a text like this is the crushing weight of our own sin can overwhelm us. The shame of our sin, particularly when it comes to sexuality, can overwhelm us and make us wonder, am I loved by God? And I want us to see by the end that it is the Holy Spirit's pleasure in you that will give us that pleasure for God and give us pleasure in God. All right, so with that, that's, that's where we're headed. But first, finding pleasure in holiness. A little background to the, the, to the world of Thessalonica. I think I've already shared quite a bit of background, but this is a little bit more maybe. Um, it is a male-dominated society, like most of the ancient world. It was presumed that man, mostly, would find their desires sexuality-related, satisfied outside of marriage. Marriage was a functional thing for caring for children and growing a family and becoming a member of society, but that those urges and desires would be fulfilled elsewhere. Um, interestingly, 
uh, not only was uh, uh, adultery normative, but it was also part of the religious structure. You would go to the temple and there would be uh, uh, prostitutes at the cultic uh, places. And so those pagan religious cults had temple prostitution as a prominent feature of their religion. Not, it's not like a side thing that people swept under the rug. This was, this was essential to it. And that, there's all sorts of reasons for that, but we can come back to that uh, at another date. Um, but right now, I just want us to note that this was, in many ways, akin to our current day and age. It's not all that different. Um, maybe we don't have the same religiosity uh, as a culture that the, the ancient Greco-Roman world did, but nevertheless, in terms of the sensuality of the world that we live in, it was, it's, it's similar, it's akin. We have no specific issue uh, that Paul is addressing in the Thessalonian church. Remember, in other churches, like in the church in Corinth, he specifically addressed concrete issues within the body. I don't, we don't see that here in Thessalonica. In fact, what we've read so far indicates that the, the people, despite the fact that he hasn't been able to minister to them, that he hasn't had access to them, that they've actually been standing firm in the faith. Right? He's received good word. Uh, a good report with regard to their lifestyle. Nevertheless, having only spent a month or so with this little church, trying to give them all, it's hard to imagine what it must have been like trying to proclaim all the truths of God as much as you could in that one month. How much time did they spend together doing that? Um, But he only had one month or so. And now... He is, from a distance, trying to say, all right, I know you're standing firm, but I also know the state and condition of the human. (laughs) I know what it means to to struggle. And so he here is exhorting them, pleading with them. In fact, the language is quite pleading. He says, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ. The two two ways to say the same thing. We ask you and we urge you. We, we, We desire strongly... In the Lord Jesus Christ, that as you received from us how you ought to walk and not to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more, abounding. Keep it going. Don't stop. Keep pressing it in. But his ask is not specific, at least until verses 3 and following. It's general. He's talking here about sanctification. He's talking about the Christian life. In fact, Paul seems to be intentionally broad when he asks them to walk in a manner that pleases God. He does get specific, but before he says that, he's basically saying your life and all that you do, everything that that you are about ought to be a life that is pleasing to God. Do the things that were taught to you. Just as you are already doing, continue in them, abound more and more. And Paul's clear. Because he goes on and he says, this is what we taught to you, but he always says, but it's not my word, right? He always goes back to, this is the way of the Lord. He says it over and over again. We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ. You received from us how to please God, not not something that we, to please us. He goes on, he says, the instructions we gave you were through the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes from him. And then in verse three, uh, the beginning, 
uh, verse 3, he says, For this is the will of God. This is what he desires for you. This is the will of God. That you, uh, the will of God, your sanctification. One of the great challenges we face, I think, as, as Christians, as, but as those corrupted by the fall, is that it seems, and I say seems very particularly, that it seems, or maybe we, I should say it feels, that's a better, that's a more contemporary word, it feels as though the things that give us pleasure and the things that please God are at odds. Right? It seems that way, doesn't it? It's like, either I live a life that is distinct and different and kind of like, the, like we talked about in church history, like uh, the monks that stand or uh, sat on poles in the desert, uh, the desert fathers who lived a life of killing off the flesh, a life of pain and suffering, a life of, uh, of getting rid of anything that feels good, right? Or I live for myself and it's all about pleasure. It's either follow God and live a boring, dull life or live uh, uh, a self-fulfilling life. And I think that there's a reason why Paul and why uh, Paul particularly in all his epistles strongly exhorts them to live lives that look different, that look like God. But there's another reason why they don't look different, why our lives often look like the world. And this is so basic, it's so obvious. The truth is there is satisfaction, pleasure, gratification, and the like when we follow the world. There is some degree or measure of it. And if we're not honest there, if we don't say, I get something I enjoy out of this, then we'll never be able to kill it off, right? Because if, until we're honest that there is something there that is attractive, we're, we're, we're always going to pretend. And the truth is, it attracts us because there's pleasure in it, there's satisfaction in it, there's gratification. Um, sexual freedom and liberty, materialism and greed, earthly glories and honors, envy and stealing, anger and vengeance, all of these things give us something, give us some sort of uh, pleasure. And it seems or it feels like when we deny ourselves those things, when we put those things off, that we lose all pleasure. And so we have those two extremes. Follow Jesus, life of sacrifice and, and dullness and no pleasure over here. Joy, pleasure. So what happens for the vast majority of us when the, when the choice comes up, when temptation comes, what do you do? What do I do? Oh, I choose the pleasure. I, I, I don't, maybe I'm the only one, but I know that for me, it's like either I, either I suffer and I don't get to enjoy something or I get the pleasure. Give a kid the option between having this big chocolate bar or having to do a chore. And you say, here it is. What do they choose? Well, most of them choose the chocolate bar, I think. And this is the problem. 
This is often how the options are presented to us. And so nine times out of ten, we go for the pleasure rather than the glory deferred. And I think this view exposes how much we have bought into that Freudian worldview that says our base desires define us, that unless we express them and find pleasure through them, we are less than. We are not what we want to be or ought to be. And so we have bought into that worldview. And I want to suggest to you another one expressed in Psalm 16 that sees pleasure and joy not just here. In fact, those pleasures are just terrible uh, fake pictures of what real joy and pleasure look like. Psalm 16, I just want to read this for you. Because I think it gets at what the Apostle Paul is saying. He says, uh, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply their drink offerings of blood. I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Do you see right there the psalms is saying, this is not pleasure. It's exactly what he's saying. What they do is not pleasure. He, now listen to what he says further in the psalm. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Joy, pleasure. Gratification, not over here, but in the Lord. And he says this at the very end. He says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is a fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I want to look at this, think about this just a little bit more. Flesh this idea out. What does it mean to find pleasure in God? Paul says here that the will of God is our sanctification, after which he takes one area, sexuality, and addresses it. But this idea of sanctification is so significant. It is the idea of becoming. What do I mean by that? The, the idea of becoming. Uh, it is the idea of becoming more loving, becoming more gracious, becoming more pure, becoming more just, becoming more forgiving, becoming more gentle, becoming more kind, more good, more faithful, more of the way God designed you to be. Going back to Freud, Freud said, you are what your base desires are. Yes, there are these things that, that help us navigate the world, but ultimately this is who you are. God is saying, that is not who you are. That is not who you were designed to be. And you want to know what it looks like to flourish and to find joy and satisfaction. It's in me in the way that I designed you. Now, those other desires, those urges, they feel as though they need satisfaction. But in reality, they're the twisted desires born out of our rebellion and rejection of God, out of the fall. They are not the things that were meant to define us. We are defined by God who made us. 
We were made for those godlike qualities. So what does that mean for us? That desires don't define us, but God does. So first, I think it's just helpful to note that those feelings of pleasure and gratification, and you all know this, I'm not going to tell you anything you don't know, but all those feelings of pleasure and gratification that you get from, from this, do they last? Of course they don't last. In fact, what they do is they drive you to get, try to seek them more and more and more and more and more. And the more you seek after them, the more they flee, they flee, the more they dissipate from our hands. We can't hold on to them. Not only do they not last, but the, the instant pleasure and gratification also comes at a cost. And usually that cost is either to us in some way that it, it breaks down our soul, but more often than not, it is a cost to another. It's destructive to other people. And so we think that we're getting pleasure, but in the end of the day, we all know the experience when we sin, when we go off in this direction, that we think, oh, that tastes good for that instant moment. And then the, the rest of our time, we're trying to fix everything that we've made a mess of. You know that feeling. And the reason all of that happens is because it's tied to this idolatry of a heart that says, I'm going to make a God, a God that will, will, will satisfy and please me. And the problem is when we make gods, they don't satisfy because they're not God. They don't have the power of God. They can't give you the, the joy and pleasure that God alone can afford you. Pleasing God, though isn't all easy either. Because pleasing God means putting to death all that stuff. It means ripping out the old self and and turning away from those things. And there's pain involved in it. So the pleasure is sometimes not as maybe, it's not, it's like eating candy, you know, that just immediately gratifies you and then, you know, makes you sick. Or eating fruit and vegetables that maybe taste okay in the meantime, but ultimately make you healthy, right? Like, they make you a a more full person. Like, you try to teach a kid, you know, broccoli is better than candy. They look at you like you're nuts. But broccoli is better than candy. And in the end, as you grow strong, young kids, as you grow up and grow healthy and grow strong, your bodies will be more pleasurable. It's why Paul often likens our sanctification, our growth in grace to athletic competitions. We are looking at the Olympics right now, of course, and there is these amazing athletes. They didn't just arrive, you know, in Beijing uh, off of, you know, the couch. Yeah, they, they worked for years to get to the place where now as they run, as well, they're not running now, as they ski and as they skate, they are enjoying the the benefits of that pain and labor and the pleasure that comes with winning those races and those competitions. Uh, There's often this elusive thing that I've heard of, and some of you may have experienced this, but I think it's a myth, um, is a runner's high. I don't know what that is. (laughs) You don't know what that is either, Rome. In theory, it's there, though, and it comes as you run more and more, right? In theory, 
a mythological thing. Earthly pleasure and the right ordering of our lives is, is okay. We can find pleasure in things in this life. But they don't compare. Even the good things of this life don't compare with the peace that we get from knowing God and being changed and made into his image and transformed and resting in that reality that I am pleasing the God who made me and I am functioning in the way that he has called me. And when I don't do that, I feel the weight of that shame. I feel the the, the decay on my body and my being. There's pleasure here as we please God. Ultimate pleasure comes from God, but there's fool's gold of self-pleasure. We've already hit on most of the fool's gold, so I've already described, but I want to look in particular at what we see here in the text. Paul exposes the idolatry related to sexual immorality. And I think the thing that stands out here in the text that we just note um, is there's, there's no halfway measures here. He says, abstain. And the word for sexual immorality, for those of you who may have a little bit of, you know, Latin Greek background or you've studied these things, is porneia. Of course, we get our word for pornography from that, that literally uh, this sexual immorality writings. Graphe, to write, right? But porneia is that it's the broad category, right? It isn't just simply adultery. That's certainly an aspect but it's all of it, all of the sexuality that we sin, that we commit, that is not in that relationship that God uh, defined sexuality to be in within the context of the husband and the wife. But I just, just notice he says abstain. He doesn't say dabble. He doesn't say don't do it a lot. He doesn't say, oh, it it doesn't matter if you're around the fringes or edges. He says, abstain from all of it, the whole category, the whole kit and caboodle, everything away. Why is this such a big deal? You know, Christians often get the knock, I think, for obsessing about sexuality, about being puritanical in their approach to sexuality. And that, that's always, you know, the caricature, right? They're just about cutting off pleasure. You don't want pleasure. Christians are all about denying pleasure. That, this obviously uh, is not saying that sexuality in and of itself is a bad thing. In fact, if we were to do a whole biblical theology of, of, of sexuality, I would say, uh, in fact, that it is, it is a very, very, very good thing. It is designed by God for that intimate communing relation between husband and wife as a symbol of that one fleshness and the joy and fellowship of being united. And that in and of itself is a picture, an image of the union we have with the Lord Jesus. So all of it is meant to be a good thing. But the problem is, in our sin, in our desires for that temporary pleasure, for that that urge that we want, we, we constantly turn it on its head. We take, we take the pleasure and we remove it from the very nature of it, which is union and communion, oneness 
vows, commitment, covenant relationship. And we tear it away and we just put it here, breaking covenant all, all over the place. Breaking relationships, making it cheap and insignificant. He says, abstain from sexual immorality. And it's an offense, not just in this sense to the person that you may commit the sin with or against, not even against yourself. Notice here it says, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Certainly, adultery fits that category, right? You wrong the, 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 the spouse, right? Of, of you wrong your spouse maybe and the other spouse and there's, there's this uh, effect that is destructive in breaking down those covenant relationships that are meant to be. But, but it's also wrong even outside. So some of you are single and young and you think, well, we are together and we are committed to one another and so what's the big deal? It isn't, we're not hurting anybody in this. But the reality is, you are, you are pretending to have relationship, acting as if you're having relationship, but you have no commitment to one another. And so you're actually damaging each other. One of the, one of the stories I think I've told here before was in a pre-marriage uh, counseling session that I had with a couple. Uh, they were a young couple, um, both lawyers. Uh, one of them was doing a judge clerkship. Uh, they, they were high flyers in the world. And they wanted me to do their pre-marriage counseling. Uh, they were headed off to D.C. Uh, they, were going, they, were, they were working in sort of the highest places of the land. They were, they were, just a, they were a beautiful couple. They had all the privileges of, of wealth and status. And they wanted me to do the, 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 um, the pre-marriage counseling. And I sat down with them and I talked with them. And the, the, the woman was clearly a Christian, grew up in a Christian home. And the, the, the man was a Christian, but he was a baby Christian, grew up in a nominally Christian home. And they were working through what this sexuality stuff was. And I remember sitting down with the, the, the fiancé, the, 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 the soon-to-be husband, and, I, and he, I, I was very concerned that they were, they were going to be living together before they were married, and I encouraged them to not. And I said, uh, they, they happened to be staying in the apartment together, and I said, you guys, that's really unwise. You're, you're in trouble. Like, you guys are going to fall into sin. This isn't a good idea. And uh, I was talking to him, and he said, Rob, you know, it, it, this is practical why we're doing it. But he said, you know, I'm not tempted. And I said, that's ridiculous. <laughs> right? You would say the same thing. It's ridiculous. Like, who of us could withstand such nonsense? But he said something, and I would not ever recommend that, but he said something that was really insightful to me. He said, Rob, I grew up, uh, he was a very good-looking guy, tall, handsome. Uh, he said, Rob, I grew up, uh, you know, with a lot of sexual partners. I uh, had many. And every time I had a partner, I was anxious. I was stressed because I had to perform. So I was always wondering if, 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 they're, if they're measuring me by this, because there was no commitment. He says, one of the beauties that I have with marrying this woman who's a Christian and doesn't want to do this is that we're going to wait until we can make it a commitment. 
He says, it was so freeing, Rob. It was the first time in my life where I felt freedom and safety and security. And I thought, that's as unwise as what you're doing is. That expresses the problem of the world's sexuality. Because ultimately it is about fulfilling the desire of the self. Brokenness, all that temporary, temporary pleasures, instead of pleasing God even in our sexuality. But I wanted to notice it's, a, it's an offense to people, but it's also an offense not only and not even primarily to others, but it's an offense to God. Notice what he says here, that not no one transgresses, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand, and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. The Apostle Paul here is saying something very scary and very profound. He's saying this sexuality thing that is so part of the culture that, that if you move into that direction, uh, you face the very judgment of God for sin. And we would say, well, aren't sinners, you know, all sin is sin. All sin brings us under judgment. But Paul's making a particular case here that this particular sin is like a bellwether. It's like a flag that points to where you find your heart and your, your, your first and primary love. It's not saying there aren't other sins, but he says this sin in particularly, particular is a sign, if you will, of where your heart lies and or your heart resides. And if it, it resides over here, you have to be aware that you face the vengeance of God. Man, that's a scary place. Because I doubt there's a single person in here who hasn't been in some measure, some frame, maybe the children notwithstanding, some measure broken by our sexual sin. Men in particular. And that weight of shame of realizing that, that what you've done deserves the vengeance of God is an overwhelming thing. Paul says one last word. And to me, this is, if it wasn't for this word, this, this passage would be crushing to the soul. But if it wasn't for this word, uh, we would lose hope. And he says, for God has not called us for impurity, but holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. And he says, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And this is my last point in conclusion, and it's short. Sinners, friends, our desires are all over the map, aren't they? Some days we wake up and we desire God, and then, then the next moment we want the flesh. That's, that's, that goes back and forth every day in our hearts. We struggle with that. 
And oftentimes we find ourselves wondering, am I, am I loved by God? Does he still love me? Does he still care about me? I've sinned in this way. Does he, does he forgive me my sins? And the good news is the, the, this, this news that we have at the end, which he says he gives to us his Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is there for quite a few purposes. One is to convict you of that sin. So if you find yourself overwhelmed with shame and guilt, consider that the Holy Spirit in you convicting you and saying, yes, you are a sinner. Yes, you deserve the vengeance of God for your sin. But you have a Savior. You have one who took upon himself the wrath and curse for your sinful sexual brokenness, for your idolatry. He's given you his Holy Spirit. And the second thing, not only is that spirit there to convict you of your sin, but that Holy Spirit there is there to help you to pray. So as you get on your knees and you don't have words to say anymore because you've done it for the millionth time, whatever that thing is, and you're crying out to God, you have an advocate, a helper who sits there on your side and is praying on your behalf. The third thing, that Holy Spirit is there to transform you, to change you. Just as we read earlier, the Lord takes that lump of clay and reshapes it and molds it and takes it and forms it so that he can show the surpassing glory of himself in you. That's good news. That's the gospel. If you're a broken sinner, whose desires often, too often, define you. Cry out to Christ, who's given you his spirit, to help you to put off that sin, to flee to Jesus, and enjoy the freedom that comes from knowing that you are forgiven, that you are loved, that you are being transformed, that you are moving from one degree of glory to another, and that at that day of Christ's vengeance, when he comes in all his glory, he's going to come and he's going to look on you and he's going to say, I love you because I love Jesus. And you will be transformed in an instant. And all those desires of the flesh will go away. And you will know joy and pleasure forevermore. Let's pray.